Welcome to Watching Trees Grow, a podcast by Troutwood, hosted by Jean Natali, co-founder and CEO of Troutwood. Watching Trees Grow is here to help Gen Z plant the seed for a sustainable and stable financial future. If you'd like to discover more from Troutwood, our speaker series is designed to work side-by-side with the Troutwood suite of investment, educational, and financial planning tools. Please visit troutwood.com to learn more. Now, here's Jean Natali. Welcome to the Troutwood Speaker Series. I am Gene with Troutwood. Today we have a very special guest. He does not know I'm going to introduce him this way, but a man who, in my opinion, is the most influential person in America in the financial literacy arena in our K-12 schools. The co-founder of NextGen Personal Finance, my friend Tim Ranzetta, and uh, our topic today is the path to Mission 2030. Tim, welcome. Gene, great to be here. And yeah, I just have to correct you on that introduction. I think the most influential people in the financial education arena are the 43,000 teachers, um, and as well as folks such as yourselves and such as yourself in the ecosystem, kind of making such a difference in providing great resources. I'll, I'll, I'll second the educators, but point out that you are humble, Tim. Um, I'm excited to unwrap Tim and, and just, learn your journey, learn how, what we, what others can do to help NextGen, to help people listening, understand what Mission 2030 is and how important it is. Before even diving in though, let's go non-finance. I want to know where are you joining us from and tell us a little bit about yourself. I currently live in Palo Alto, California, just about a mile, mile and a half from the Stanford University campus. Um, so this is actually the last place in the world I would have ever expected to live having grown up in Northern New Jersey. But uh, yeah, grad school took me out here in the early 90s, and I've been here since. Um, just great environment. If you are an entrepreneur, it's um, there is something in the drinking water here in terms of that spirit of innovation and and the ecosystem that exists just in terms of the, uh, the talent pool and, again, that can-do attitude. That you can you know you can create organizations here that are really going to make a difference in the world. I've been out on Stanford Stanford's campus once, and I remember seeing more bikes than cars across the community. Is that still the case? It is. Uh, you got to be careful actually walking around campus because uh, they don't always stay in the bike lanes either. Tim, tell it before again before going next. So, what's the background? What was your inspiration? What kind of got you ticking and thinking about this financial education journey? Yeah. So first of all, I, I got to start with my parents because um, they were my first teachers when it came to money. We were very unusual in that we did talk about money quite a bit. My father was a banker. I was the fifth child of six. Neither one of my parents had a four-year college degree, but it was clear that that was going to be something that was very important um, that we would have we would each accomplish. Um, however, we were firmly in the middle class, which meant, you know, we earned too much to get financial aid, but too little in order to pay our way through school. So it was like instilled in me. I don't remember any ever being told you're going to need to pay for college if you want to go. But uh, that was started with a dog walking job at the age of seven, uh, shoveling snow when it's, you know, for many people, snow is an inconvenience. For me, it was an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial opportunity raked leaves, caddied, you know, eight summers at a golf course and basically paid 75% of my way through school. But so that was the, you know, those were the lessons I had growing up. My dad was a genius too, in terms of uh, saving schemes where, you know, he would contribute to our education, but it was always on a matching basis. So he was kind of like every dollar you saved, I'll match you 50 cents um, up to a certain a certain amount. So those those lessons were instilled in me early. So that was a tremendous gift uh, my parents gave, as well as, you know, my mom was the, you know, she had six kids, but that wasn't enough for her. So she was the community volunteer. She was the Girl Scout. She Girl Scout leader. She wrote the parish newsletter. Um, yeah, she worked at the soup kitchen. She was somebody who was very much um, out there in terms of supporting the community. So I kind of feel like I got I got tremendous gifts from my parents. And then I was an entrepreneur for about, you know, 15, 20 years in the private sector. And then as chance would have it about a decade ago, I volunteered 
to teach a personal finance course at an amazing high school, Eastside College Prep, uh, which is in a neighboring community, East Palo Alto, serving first generation students who wanted to be first in their family to go to college. And so incoming ninth graders, I wasn't sure what I was in for when I first volunteered. Um, so I did what everybody else does. You go out and Google and look for curriculum. I needed to come up with 25 hours and really didn't see there were a lot of workbooks that I would have needed to order. And I think because I was starting this process about two weeks before school started, I wasn't sure the workbooks were going to arrive on time. So I needed to cobble together a course. And the good news is there's a lot of great resources on the internet. The bad news is you got to wade through a lot of garbage before you get there. And so it was in the process of creating that course where I said, you know what, there has to be, there's thousands, tens of thousands of people teaching this at high schools. Like, I, I wonder how many of them are doing the exact same thing I'm doing, which is curating resources. Can I create something? So that was the, that was the nugget of the idea. And then when I went and taught these students and I just saw the impact, I saw how excited they were to talk about money. And then in this community, the students who were in this program were lower income, black or brown students seeking to be first in their family to go to college and recognizing that if you teach the students well, they were taking this home to their parents. And so I started getting emails from parents. Hey, I hear you know something about money. You know, David came home today to talk about investing. I'd love to sit down and learn more about it too. And you just recognize, boy, the ripple effect of teaching well, teaching these students well can go far beyond the classroom. So I was hooked. That was a decade ago. I've taught that class nine of the last 10 summers. Unfortunately, COVID last year um, prevented them from having a summer program. But I think that kind of fired me up to do something. And it was about three years after I started teaching that I formally set up NextGen Personal Finance. There was a book that was popular in my kids' elementary school, What Do You Do With an Idea? You start NextGen Personal Finance. <laughs> Uh, Tim, I want just I want to I'm going to backtrack on three questions for younger listeners. What age did you open your bank account? Your first bank account? With yeah, I was seven, and seven you know, years. and and I you know these were the days where there were passbooks, like they would literally stamp your 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 passbook. And again, I had a dog walking job. That was the best. My neighbor broke her hip. Her Jack Russell Terrier, you know, pulled her over uh, one night, and so she needed somebody to walk dice her dog. And so I did that. It took her a long time to recover. I probably did it for a full year, three times a day. Boy, I learned responsibility at a young age. Cause if you didn't get that dog out for a walk, that was Mrs. Battiston was not going to be happy. But every Friday she gave me a crisp $5 bill. And I took that $5 bill and I walked a third of a mile down to the United Jersey bank. Here's this, you know, seven-year-old kid depositing money every Friday. And then at the dinner table, I'd pull the passbook out. My dad would take a look at it. And, you know, it was like over the course of a year, that's 250 bucks, which to a seven-year-old kid, you know, that would buy a lot of baseball cards. Um, I didn't actually buy a lot of baseball cards. I, I don't think my dad told me I could take money out of that account until I was in. I didn't think I realized I could take money out of that account until I was in college, um, which was probably a good thing because I needed every dime. Uh, that's an interesting perspective. My 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 nine my nine year old and my ten year old have bank accounts, but they don't realize they can touch the money either. So well, yeah, one funny story about the bank account. So I think one, she may have given me a raise later on in the year because it was a, I made a seven dollar deposit one day, and I came home. I looked at my bank book, and instead of seven dollars, it said seven hundred dollars. And again, like I'm a seven year old kid. There's suddenly this. And my dad said, uh, 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 before you get any ideas, you're going down to the bank teller and you're telling her, boy, I got to tell you, she was a she was a little embarrassed. She probably had trouble uh, balancing the books from the night before. But uh, yeah, seven hundred dollar bank error in your favor. But and that was another great lesson from my dad. Like, you know, no, you're going to do the right thing here. Don't mm -hmm. even don't even think about it. Very powerful. The, so following a bank account, I'm curious, what age did you open your first investing account? Yeah, that came much later. Yeah, it's funny because I needed every dime for college. Like I, I 
I had this ledger form, this legal sheet, which actually ended up sh- appearing in a New York Times article when I was in, I think it was my senior year in high school, or I was mapping out how am I going to pay for college. And I think I graduated with about $100 uh, in my savings account. So I was not in a position to think long term. So my first investment account was Quick and Riley um, in Boston, went down to their brokerage, took half of my first paycheck and invested in the next high flying company called, hold on to your seats for this one, Check Robot. This was a company that was going to revolutionize the checkout at major retailers. You know, so this is 1989, fall of 1989. I was so excited. Like my roommate had done some research. They were going to get big contracts with Kroger. Like it made all the sense in the world, right? Unfortunately, it took, we were about 20 years too early, right? Like you go to Home Depot now, you can do the automated checkout. Um, yet yeah, it took a lot longer. A good, good, important lesson though. I think I lost half that. In, no, I lost more. It was a $7 stock. I think I sold it at two bucks. Um, so good lesson that um, about the perils. It, probably the best thing that ever happened to me because I think after that point, I got interested in mutual funds. And then soon thereafter, I got interested in index funds. So um, it took a little while. I think there's a life cycle when it comes to investing. I think when you're, you know, when you're new to the game, you think you can pick stocks that will do well. Like you have an edge, you have inside, uh, you have intuition. And then I think the more time you spend investing, the more, at least in my history, um, I'm glad I learned those lessons in my 20s. A friend from the industry has told me that the worst thing that can happen to an individual is getting that first trade right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I spent a year in the investment management world after um, after getting a uh, an MBA. I went to work for a money management firm out of Boston. And part of that process of getting a job is you have to pitch them a stock. And so I had done all, you know, so you have to come in and you have to do your research, talk about why you invested. And so at the time, and this was 1994, 95, and I was talking about Motorola. Like, and so I had invested um, a couple hundred bucks in Motorola over a three month period. Maybe it was up 20%. So I'm like, this is great. I'm going to come in with this story and this portfolio manager, the person who's going to make the hiring decision, boy, he's going to really be impressed. So I get through this thesis. I get through the you know, the modeling that I had done. And then he stares and then I'm like, and the stock was up 20%. And he's like, over what time period? I said, over like three months. Like, that's a really good invest. He's like, you got lucky. (laughs) What? Like, yeah. So I I think I learned the difference between, yeah, volatility in the market and not getting uh, confused that that has anything to do with your genius. Um, Of course, we all know what happened to Motorola later. Well, uh, life lessons are powerful. And the younger we learn them, the more powerful. Yeah. Tim, you said something I want to jump back to, and I'm going to bridge it to your graduating with $100 and then ultimately to, to founding NextGen. You said you took an entrepreneurial mind to walking dogs. So at an early age, you applied an entrepreneurial mind. For anyone younger listening, what does that mean? And what lesson would you give them? That seven, that eight, that nine-year-old, uh, the sons, the daughters of educators who say, huh, now I'm thinking. Yeah, I think I I needed to find ways to make money. Um, and so, and again, I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur as a kid. I, I just thought of myself as like, I can find a lot of different ways to make money. And so, you know, another example, I think, I think one of the worst things that's happened is that young people don't get newspaper routes anymore. So this was a family tradition of ours. When you turned 12, you took over a newspaper route. And again, you talk about every day having, it was six days a week, the Bergen record. You had to deliver it where the people wanted it. Well, you know, you didn't throw the newspaper on their driveway. Like, you know, they wanted it inside their door. They wanted it through the slot. And then every Wednesday, Thursday, you'd have to go collect. And, you know, that was responsibility. And so when I think about entrepreneurship there, they're like, I got a lot of jobs off of that. I had 50 people on my newspaper route. So I became the guy who you could call to say, hey, can you clean out my garage? Hey, can you rake my leaves? Hey, can you um, shovel the 
our driveway when it snows out. And I think this idea, so I, I think, you know, young people, seven, eight, nine, ten, like, hey, it's a hot summer day, go find a busy street corner and sell lemonade. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, there's there's just so many, so many different ways to try stuff. And again, I don't, I didn't think of myself as an entrepreneur. I just thought of like, okay, I'm going to find different ways to make money. You hear about, you know, students going out and buying snacks and in bulk and then selling them to their friends. Like there's a, there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different ways to do it. Um, As you're talking, I'm thinking networking. You networked with 50 customers on a newspaper route. Yeah. And that little bit of extra, just saying hi, checking in, and the doors that it opened. Yeah, I think there's an element on the newspaper route, which is reliability. Like, so for two years, six days a week, you're proving yourself to folks that, okay, this is somebody who uh, the paper's never wet when it rains out. The paper's always here on time. It was an afternoon. Um, yeah, it was so important. And then when I, you know, the next job, I, as soon as I was old enough to get, you know, my working papers, I think I was 14. I got this job as a golf caddy at um, a neighboring golf course. And this was Northern New Jersey. So a lot of members were Wall Street executives. And so there, I I think I learned how do you you talk to business professionals? You know, how do you ask? They were interested because I was studying business when I got, when I was in college, you know, so they were interested in kind of, you know, they were interested in me because I was this guy who was also interested in business. And so... And again, I got gigs off of that too. I, I, you know, cleaning pool furniture or raking leaves. I don't know. I, you learn a lot of humility. Like you could look at, I, I think one of the key things is no matter what job you have, be the best at it and don't just do what's told, but go the extra mile. So, you know, I'm 14 years old. I'm showing up at the cat, caddy yard and it's a seniority based system. I mean, you got folks driving in, taking the bus from New York City who are, you know, professional caddies. This is their gig. They're not 14-year-old kids who are like, maybe I can earn some extra bucks. And so you got to pay your dues. Like, so I literally spent, it was depressing. I Like I, my first summer, I'd spend four hours up there. I'd ride my bike three miles. It wasn't uphill both ways. It was only uphill on the way <laughs> there. Um, but there are oftentimes I'd come home with nothing you'd sit up there four hours and you wouldn't get called. And so I'd bring a book, I'd read, I'd occupy myself. And the caddy master would look at me and he'd say, you know what? Keep coming, you know, stick around. You know, it's the people, because there were a lot of young kids up there. And, you know, these are people who expect a high level of service. And so you just kind of observe, you watch how people behave, you know, you kind of figure out, okay, where, what is my place here? And gosh, by my third summer, I was clearing $5,000 a summer, which, you know, we're talking late 80s here. That was half my college bill. Um, so persistence. I think that's a lesson in persistence because there were probably 20 kids just like me when I was going up there. And I think two of us kind of continued, you know, and it was hard. You know, I'd go home. My dad would say, how much did you earn today? And I'd say nothing. What are you doing up there? Now, dad, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, you just got to you got to persist. And I think, you know, so I would bring a book. I read a lot of books that summer. <laughs> and persistence is different than stubbornness. You saw a path, you were showing up, you were being encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. And and I learned, I think that's the other thing. Like you, you go find the experienced caddies and you, okay, I'm not getting out there. I'm not getting a ton of experience, but you're just watching, observing, you're asking questions. I want to get into next gen, Tim, but I'm going to tangent us one more time. Uh, I have an observation from a lot of interactions with both high school and college students that there is some fear in terms of approaching someone and asking for advice, saying, I'd like to learn from your experiences. You clearly did that quite well. What advice would you give to that high school, that college student who maybe lacks the courage to say help or I'd like to learn from you? People want to help. I think you, you, it's so easy to be intimidated by people. Oh, they're not going to have time for me. Oh, why would they ever want to support me? I think, I think people later in their careers are eager to pull the next generation up. And so any, you know, and again, it's a conversation. So I think kind of just see it as an opportunity to do your research, 
when they say yes, do your research. And, you know, that conversation may lead to three, you know, you talked about networking earlier. Um, when I have a conversation with a young person who's done their homework and is interested in getting into the finance field or interested in starting a business one day, being an entrepreneur, I'm going to spend time with them. Like I absolutely, if I could support someone who, because I know I got lifted all throughout my career. I mean, I had so many great mentors, so many great people who invested in me. Like I want to do the same. So I think, you know, and so who do you look for? So if you're in college, like your college has an alumni network, there's a special affinity to want to help people because, oh, you went to the same college that I did. Mm -hmm. um, just find that that commonality. I mean, because it can be hard to reach people. I'm not going to deny that, right? If you want to go talk to Mark Cuban, um, pick a number. Like that's going to be hard to get through. But, you know, business leaders in your community, um, and you're interested and you show that level of interest. Cause I, I think the other thing is write a really good email and you will stand out. Mm -hmm. Write an email that's persuasive. And, and then again, it also, it can, it comes down to persistence, but once you get in that network, you know, you close the meeting with, Hey, are there two or three other people you think who might be able to walk, you know, who'd be happy to have a conversation with me too. And then suddenly you're, you're off to the races. But people want to help. I think that's the hardest thing. for a young person. Like, why would they want to? What do I have to offer? Why would they want to talk to me? Um, you generally find most people do want to help. Uh, I'll, I'll just repeat. Do your research and be persistent. If the first person you ask says no, don't say this doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Maybe it just caught them on a bad day. Uh, all right, Tim, let's dive into next gen. Let's dive into the path to mission 2030. And let's start with, for anyone, what is NGPF? What is next gen? Yeah, so next gen is a nonprofit, uh, next gen personal finance founded almost seven years ago. It'll be early May. And there's really three parts um, or our, our overriding mission. The reason I started the organization and my co-founder, Jessica, is a Pennsylvania native. Um, the reason we started it is just the belief that every student should have access, should be able to complete a course in personal finance while they're in high school. So many big decisions that are, that are going to get made, right? What am I going to do after high school? How am I going to start establishing a credit history? What does it mean to invest in the stock market? How do I manage a bank account? So many of these things are happening and I'd rather students not have to learn through the, the school of hard knocks. So we started it seven years ago. It's really three parts to our business. And I think this integrated model, I think has really been key to our early, early successes. And so first is curriculum. So we wanted to have the most comprehensive set of curriculum that was available. Teachers told us, I'm tired of going to multiple websites because one site is good at this, another is good at that. And so if you need a turnkey semester course or a nine week course or a semester long course, well, we have it. If you're just looking for supplemental activities, projects, case studies, questions of the day, current events, well, we have that too. If you want an incredible set of award-winning games, we have a NGPF Arcade with nine, nine games. And so that was the curriculum side. We wanted, to, we wanted to make it easy for teachers to implement, but also incredibly engaging for students. So then the second piece of our business is professional development, because we recognize most teachers who teach personal finance may not have any formal education when it comes to personal finance. And so we wanted to be able to provide that service. And so today we offer professional development three ways. We have 10 to 12 one hour virtual professional development sessions every week. We also offer certification courses in 10 different topic areas. So if you want to go deep in content, you get nine hours of live instruction plus a certification exam. And then the third is on demand because we know teacher schedules are crazy these days. And so if you want to learn, go deeper in a content area on your own schedule at your own pace, we have, we have on demand. So those two pieces, we felt like if we got those two pieces right, it leads to the third, which is advocacy, which is our belief that change is going to happen here primarily at the grassroots level because 
provide teachers with curriculum that they're really excited to teach, provide them with professional development so they're confident to teach the subject, then it becomes a lot easier to, to walk in the principal's office or stand in front of the board at your school board meeting and say, every student deserves this. Mm -hmm. Tim, right? Was there, so years ago, Vanguard had done a study that said teachers were, and showed teachers were nervous to teach the subject, which no surprise when we look at financial statistics across America, we hadn't been taught prior to a lot of these recent efforts. There's brilliance in how you've set this up. Uh, so there's actually, yeah. And let me tell you about some new research because that, I felt like that was a real hurdle and it wasn't what we were seeing in the professional development where we were partnering with educators. There was a study, I think it was University of Wisconsin, 9% of people who teach or would be teaching personal finance were confident to teach it, 9%. So that was a very easy way for state legislators to say, well, we can't make this accessible to all kids because we don't have the teaching core that's trained, qualified, and confident to teach it. So really cool report just came out and we can share this in the, in the show notes where we updated that study. Uh, it was done by Carly Urban and Melody Harvey, who are two great researchers around financial education. They modeled it, similar survey. They asked over 500 teachers, same set of questions, from 9% to 70%. 70% of teachers said they were confident. Why? Because there's a lot more high quality, no cost professional development available. That was the number one indicator. So 70% said they were very confident. I think 20% said they were confident. Um, so it's changing, it's changing the game. And, and our experience has been, you know, since COVID hit uh, a little over a year ago, what we have seen from teachers is just truly inspiring. You know, just growing. the numbers are 6,000 teachers, participated 120,000 hours of professional development. So I talked about those three different types of professional development. Teachers want to learn this stuff. They are eager. So this idea of, oh, no, we don't have the core of teachers. They want to do more. And so that's what gives me hope. That's what gives me inspiration every day to hear. Because this is one of those subjects when a teacher participates in professional development, not only are they becoming better teachers, they're finding out that they're learning stuff that's going to make them more successful in their own financial lives. Like you talk about motivation. We see it. You know, huh. it's, it's remarkable. Tim, think underneath that, what students are learning, what students are taking away and how their lives will be different than those that came before because of this knowledge. Yeah, it's, I mean, we hear it every day from from teachers in terms of, you know, thank you. Let me tell you about the impact it's having, whether it's Patrick Kubany up in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, who has a board where students put their name up there when they open a Roth IRA. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's in our documentary. You know, we have a documentary um, titled the, the Most Important Class You Never um, I'm probably botching the title now. Um, yeah, I think it's the most important class you never had. Um, he's, he's featured recommended having watched it. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, it's, it's students, but it's not, often not as dramatic as that. It's students opening bank accounts. It's students going home to their parents and talking about credit scores. Hey, how can we, how can you get a higher credit score? Um, it's, remarkable. Like anybody who spends time in a classroom uh, teaching this stuff knows the impact is at an individual student level, level and it often translates into, into the family also. No doubt about it. If there was a way to measure the impact five and 10 years out from now, I would predict it is nothing but positive. Yeah. More entrepreneurism, you know, better financial statistics, less stress. Yeah. And there's just, there's a feeling of empowerment that comes with it. Um, so you don't feel like you're you're a victim because you understand what the rules of the you know what the rules of the game are and you're getting ahead of it. You know, it's just take credit scores for example. Boy, early mistakes. It's an elevator on the way down and an escalator on the way up, right? Those early mistakes can be so dramatic. Or student debt, right? If we can just get if we can just get students and their families to plan out four or five years instead of 
Gene, I know you want to go to your dream school. We're going to make it happen. And it becomes a one year at a time. And then you graduate and the bill is a lot that student debt is so much higher than, um, than maybe it would have been had, had you planned and made, made different decisions. And, um, Tim, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I've always wished I, I would be asked. Can you tell us about the team that's helped you put this together? I, I've met some of them and I know they're phenomenal, but I'd be curious to hear more from you. Oh, uh, it's an all-star team. Yeah. And I think it starts with, with Jessica. Um, our, our co-founder, because she had that unique background of being a math teacher, an assistant principal, and then one of the youngest principals in the New York school system. So I think the way she thought about curriculum was very different um, in terms of recognizing that, okay, this needs to be good enough for teachers, but it also needs to be good enough that when admin administrators take a look at this curriculum developers, or curriculum, uh, the head of curriculum in a district that they see the value in it. And so she really laid the tracks down early in terms of, okay, here's how we're going to create curriculum that teachers, that teachers love. Um, I would say, you know, so what's, what's common about the team? I think it's mission oriented. I think everybody who comes on board has that same belief, boy, this was a course I wish I had, boy, this is a course every student should have. And it's, it's really an equity issue. I think if you talk to most team members, why is this, why are you passionate about this topic? I think it's it's about equity. It's about when we look at the numbers, for example, you know, it's one in five students nationwide are taking a personal finance course before they graduate. But you go into schools serving black and brown students, it's about one in 14. And so we have to do better there. So we're devising strategies as to how do we ensure that access is broader within those communities. I think the other thing that's amazing about the team is the versatility. So up until very recently, we really didn't have an organizational chart because <laughs> I don't want to put people in boxes because what I find is that we have a really versatile team and I think they really benefit. I, I told you about three parts of our business and I think everybody pretty much participates in at least two of them. So you have folks who write curriculum, but they also provide professional development, people who provide professional development that also do advocacy and business development. And I think they love the ability to have, uh, yeah, have a day full of variety, you know, where one minute you're talking to state leaders about how do we increase access to financial education in their state. And the next hour, they're hopping on a call with 100 teachers doing a virtual PD about um, about investing, you know? So I think when we've really benefited, I, I think the third thing that's common is just the incredible work ethic. I think when you're mission oriented, it doesn't feel like a job. When you're mission oriented, there's a level of urgency to like every, you know, every day before your head hits the pillow or every night, are you thinking about how did I make a difference in the lives of teachers and students? And um, did I bring somebody else along on this journey? Did I help somebody else see the importance of the work um, as well as the, you know, the, the, the thing about this goal of all students is you, you never feel like you're done. You know, it's, it's a big, hairy, audacious goal. And when people say, congratulations, you've accomplished so much. There's still four to five kids yeah. who are going off into the world, not very knowledgeable about how to manage their money. So a lot of room to go. What's the path to, to start to knock away at those numbers? And I'm a maybe tie in mission 2030. How do you see us going from one out of five to two out of five to four out of five? Yeah, I think it's, I think this is a Hemingway quote. It was slow and then it was sudden. <laughs> I, I think it really, and there's some research out there that shows there's a bit of a ripple effect in terms of one district makes a commitment. Well, let me share with you some numbers. So the, the glass half empty is one out of five. The glass half full is that there are 1,400 schools outside of states that require personal finance. So there's six states that currently require personal finance. There are 1,400 schools and about 60 to 70 in the great state of Pennsylvania where somebody stood up, a teacher, a student, a parent, the business community, a board member, the principal, the superintendent, and said, this needs to be a priority. Like there's a million reasons, there's a million hurdles that we can put in place. But as my mom used to say, where there's a will, there's a way. Well, 1,400 
close to 1,400 schools, they've managed to make it happen. So the path I see is a couple of things. First of all, we're going to announce something next month in April that's an intermediate goal. We're calling it Mission 2025, which is there are still 30 percent, 30 to 35 percent of schools where there is not even a personal finance course in the books. There isn't a personal finance course, a semester long course in the course catalog. So let's solve that problem. So we'll we'll provide a thousand dollar grants to schools that go from not having a course to having an elective that they offer. And so. Tim, are you advertising that so schools know that that's available? Yeah, we'll be announcing that in April. So we uh, we'll have we got to get the back end, we got to get the application process, all of that that settled. So um, we will. And so the goal there is thousand schools. So it's a million dollar it's a million dollar program because we know the path is slow. We know the path takes time. And so what we've seen for schools that have made it to the finish line. Cause we also have, if you're somebody listening saying, you know, we already have an elective, I want to make it a requirement. Well, we got a grant program for that too. It's called the gold standard challenge. And that's a $10,000 grant. If you can ensure that every student who graduates from that school is going to take a one semester personal finance course. Um, so that's the other, what we've seen happen in the school community is you start with an elective, the teacher, you know, gets excited about the course, sees the impact with, with the students, the students start buzzing about it. You market the class, one section turns into two, two sections turns into four. Suddenly before you know it, you're off to the races. And it's like, well, there's 70, 60, 70% of kids and we got a wait list. Why don't we just make this a requirement? Like you can't go zero to requirement overnight. Like this is, it takes time. You want to build that capability within the school environment so that so that the implementation goes well but you know we see it day in day out in fact we just today um christian who leads our gold standard challenge effort we just hit 100 schools so in the, in the middle of a pandemic 100 schools have made a commitment that every student will get a personal finance course before they cross that graduation stage i think that's remarkable. So I could not be happier in terms of um, the pace. But again, I think it's going to be slow. And then I think it's going to be really fast. And I think there is at some point, you know, there's a top down approach um, in terms of getting legislatures. You know, we just did some research, 18 states currently in the 2021 legislative session have personal finance education legislation that's pending. So it seems like that's a right of uh, a right of spring uh, where these bills come out, but I, I I'm hopeful that a couple will make it to the finish line this year. At some point, that will be peer pressure in a positive fashion too, as your neighboring states start to get those courses. FOMO, 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 FOMO. Yep, fear of missing out. Tim, when you mentioned some of your statistics, are you speaking K through 12, 9 through 12? What's kind of the geography? Your focus is high school. Okay, yeah, so that's um, and it's just it's an information issue. So we are going into course catalogs and identifying basically, and we have a, we have maps on our website by state, and we categorize schools in three different categories. Gold standard is every student who graduates will take a one semester personal finance course. Silver is a semester long personal finance course that's an elective, and then bronze is personal finance standards appear in another course. Predominantly, we tend to see that in economics. Tim, what can teachers do to help you accomplish both mission 2025 and mission 2030? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of things. I think it starts with the the basics of how can you make your course the best it can be? And so, so many teachers come to us and tell us about how excited they get about how they're thinking about how do I make my course a little bit better? Like we talk about compounding interest when it comes to the stock market. I think about compounding and I, I try and practice this in my own, um, both the professional development I provide as well as my teaching during the summer. Like if I can make that lesson a little bit better every time, then the next group who takes the course is gonna be that much better off. And then you multiply that over years. Like I hate to go back and look at my first year's lessons 
oh my gosh, that would be incredibly embarrassing. But I'm pretty proud of where where it stands today because I've had nine years to kind of make it make it a little bit better. So make your course the best that it can be. And we're here to partner with you to help support you. Whether and there's there's a phenomenal community um, called Finlet Fanatics. It's a Facebook group over 5,700 teachers who teach personal finance. So now you're you meet your tribe in Finlet Fanatics. A really incredibly active group. Somebody puts up there, you know, hey, I'm I have a principal. I have observation tomorrow. What's a good budgeting activity idea? You'll get. 10 different responses within probably six hours like the teachers helping teachers is kind of that's a that's a great group to kind of both uh, bounce ideas off of other teachers but also just feel like you're not alone because we also know most personal finance teachers may be the only person in their building who's teaching uh -huh. it so now you found your tribe you kind of this group of finance nerds and yeah the amount of sharing collaboration is phenomenal so i think that's number one because when you make your course really good, you know, if you build it, they will come. More students will come. And I think that's that's the key. And so what else can you do? You can set up a business advisory group in your like when I think about if you want to increase access to personal finance education, you got to build a coalition. You know, so think about business people in your community because business people see this every day. Oh, I hired young employees and they're really stressed about stressed out about their finances. Boy, I wish that was taught in school um, or, you know, reach out to board members because most school boards are going to have business people on it, too. And so, again, appeal to them this this tremendous opportunity. You know, we've seen teachers, um, we've seen students take the lead, you know, and maybe with some nudging from teachers like, hey, why don't we do a student survey at the school and ask students whether they think this is a course that's important. Um, the numbers and we have a universal uh, survey up on our website so you don't have to build anything from scratch. You know, the numbers come out consistently 85, 95 percent of kids say they want it. Um, engage parents. You know, so if you're teaching a personal finance course, we have a newsletter template because we, we know how hard it is to get parents to show up. But boy, if you can send them a newsletter that talks about what you're teaching their kids, that can be helpful for them. But you're also building some potential advocates for you down the road. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different, I, I just want to make sure folks feel like we're here to help in terms of when you're ready to advocate, uh, when you're ready to go to that next level. We have a board deck. If you get to the point where you're like, you know what, I want to sit down with the principal or I want to sit down with the, the board and talk about this. You know, we have that board deck talking about the impact that financial education has positive effects with all the research studies that are out there to try and help you make make the most compelling case. So our bet is that it will be teachers who make the difference here. Um, and it will come from their passion, from their mission, you know, the mission driven nature. Teaching overall is so mission driven. But I think you find another layer of mission when you're talking about um, the impact they see personal finance in their classrooms. We'll work with you, Tim, to make sure we link all of this appropriately in the show notes so that it's easy for educators to find. And Tim, one of the things I really admire about your work is um, you just how well you play well with others, for lack of a more um, you know, professional term there. You've interviewed professionals, finance nerds, people all around the world. And I'm curious, since you sit in that unique position, of having had this similar conversation with experts from all over, if there is anything that has surprised you as a part of this journey, anything that where you just were like, wow, I hadn't thought of that angle or uh, maybe I disagree here. Yeah, I think the big, well, first of all, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Gene. I, this is probably the second or third time I've been on the other side of the microphone. Uh, I like asking questions a lot better. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I guess the similarities are, you know, everybody you talk to from across the world recognizing whether it's a researcher in Brazil or somebody starting up a charity in the United Kingdom or somebody running a great educational program in Nigeria, you know, just the passion. It's both the passion 
and the importance and the challenges. <laughs> I would say that's the the common thread that you hear. I mean, you hear it in their voice. They know. They have a personal story to tell about why this is, is such an important topic to them. Um, hmm. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm just thinking through like the, the paths. I mean, I've been so lucky to cross paths. There's Oren from Iceland who shows up one day on one of our virtual PDs and says, you know, I'm a second career person. I was in the financial services field. I decided financial education is going to be my passion. And so he goes and gets his teaching degree and he's in a classroom in Iceland and he wants to build a national movement around this. And yeah. You know, and then there's an another fellow whose name escapes me right now, um, Ed from from the UK. Similar finance background, started you know saw that his his children didn't really have this knowledge, even though he was in the finance field, but didn't so wanted to give back and started started his own charity. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of passion that people bring to this. And then I, I just think it, the challenge becomes, we all face is the distribution. We know young people need this, but they often don't come to, they don't come to it, right? And that's why this idea of the only place you can reach all kids is schools. Mm -hmm. And I think that's ultimately why the solution we chose was let's work and partner with teachers because we have an audience of students. Let's you know make their ex experience uh, in the classroom as positive as possible. You've done such an exemplary job of transferring ownership to those teachers. Um, they get excited about the material. Uh, Tim, has anything surprised you where, where throughout this journey? Um, is it maybe is it at the speed of the progress? Is it, is there, is there a surprise? Things are never fast enough for me, Gene. Things are never, I mean, I mean, you know, as an entrepreneur yourself, like the first two years, you know, it was, it was Jessica, myself and Andrew, a third person. And we were just creating curriculum because I didn't really want to market that heavily until I felt like we had a product that teachers would, would really enjoy. Um, so I guess, yeah, the surprise is that six and a half years later, there are 43,000 teachers who've signed up for teacher <laughs> accounts and we haven't had one district or one state mandate that you have to teach person, you have to teach NGPF. And so, I think that's the biggest surprise has just been the tremendous word of mouth. Like our teachers, teachers have been the best marketers because when teachers find something they like, they tell others and we wouldn't be where we are without teachers. Also, you know, every startup is full of lucky breaks. We had a phenomenal group of early adopter teachers who kind of adopted us and said, we really like what you're doing. And, most of our ideas come from just listening, listening to teachers who have, who tell us what they need in the classroom. And we try, we try and deliver. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest challenge now that we feel like we have a, a model on the curriculum side, as well as on the professional development side, I think that the biggest challenge facing us over the next nine years is, yeah, how do we rev that advocacy engine? How do we move from, one in five kids to in a couple of years, 50% of kids to a couple of years after that, 75%. A lot of people look at me like, you're nuts. This is never going to happen. But, you know, the things that are really hard to do, you know, the things that are really worthwhile are really hard to do. And so I don't recognize that it's a, it's a difficult path ahead, but I think a lot of people would have been surprised um, that we are where we are today. And so put together a great team, have an incredible community of 43,000 educators, I wouldn't bet. I wouldn't bet against us. Um, if I if I was a betting man, which I'm not, I, I would bet on you beating 2030, Tim. <laughs> uh, it was slow and then it was sudden. Uh, yeah. I'm, we're going to remember that. And 43,000 unique educators, just so everyone adheres that number. Tim, before we start to wrap up, I did, with that entrepreneurial um, kind of tie, was there ever a moment of doubt Oh, there's always doubt. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, every venture I've been involved in, there's doubt. And then, you know, because most ventures fail, right? I mean, most don't get off. This was probably from a business perspective. And we, we haven't talked about this, but, you know, one of the things 
we decided at the outset was we were going to provide everything at no cost to teachers um, because at the end of the day, you put up a paywall. You know, if we're serious that we want all kids to get personal finance, um, you can't put up a paywall. And I, I guess one of the folks who had an influence on me, I was kicking around the Khan Academy offices in Mountain View early on. I think there were four people at the time, Sal with some other business people. And I remember the conversation where people are like, Khan Academy at the time was taking off. And there were some people who were, he's a nonprofit. There were some people saying, you know, you ought to start charging for this. Like the demand for this is incredible. And he's like, no, I said, you know, free education for all. I don't want to have a conversation where, you know, on the one hand, I'm trying to optimize a pricing model. But on the other hand, I'm telling people, oh, this is free education. Like that's, I can't deal with that lack of congruence between kind of what I'm saying and then what we're doing as a business. And, and that just, you know, at the outset, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I had some success as an entrepreneur and I'm going to fund this organization so that we're not dependent on outside donors, but we're also not dependent on charging schools. Um, Cause I can't imagine, I can't imagine a better investment. You know, when you think about, just the dollar and cents impact, the dollars and cents impact this class can have on individuals. And they have, you know, they have 60, 70 years ahead of them. Um, that's, yeah, for me, I, I, it, I don't think there's anything even close from a return, return on investment perspective. So yeah, you absolutely have doubts. And that's a great, from my perspective, that's always a great motivator. Um, you know, I, I took a class when I was in business school with Andy Grove, who was one of the founders of Intel. And he wrote a book or I don't know if it was a book title or, but he had a phrase, only the paranoid survive. And so I'm, I'm paranoid. I'm always looking around the corner. I'm always trying to figure out why we're going to, why this movement is going to get blocked because that's how you, you know, you got to always be thinking two or three steps ahead and recognize it's not a smooth path and you got to try a lot of different things. Um, I think that's the other thing as an entrepreneur is, there's another phrase, I think, if you're going to fail, fail quickly, like fail quickly in terms of strategy, figure out that, okay, that path doesn't work. Let's go try something else. Um, and not being too wed to, uh, I think that's the other, the other key is like not getting too invested in an idea because you got to look at the data. If, if that idea is not working, you got to bury it and move on. Like, don't, don't get your ego too invested. Um, because there's a lot of things we've done, you know, that haven't worked. Oh, I could tell you, there's a long list. And the number of ideas that Jessica, who, you know, the number of bad ideas that Jessica stopped before they ever saw the light of day. I mean, that's a voluminous list. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question, but. Tim, there was a lot of entrepreneurial wisdom <laughs> in that narrow segment. Um you know, one thing I, I've heard on the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey, when you have a partner like like you and Jessica, did either of you ever have like the same bad day where you both doubted what you were doing or was it kind of complimentary over that two-year building period? That's a great question. I, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer a different question first. Um, and that is, yes, as an entrepreneur, if you can find a partner, because each one of the three ventures I spent the most time on had partners and we had complementary skills. And so, you know, with Jessica and I, I'm the wild, crazy idea guy. Jessica's the realist teacher in the classroom. How are we going to kind of take this idea and make it work, make it and implement it? And I think that balance is really important. Um, another business I was involved in, you know, document destruction, the shredding business, I was the eternal optimist. And my partner tended to be a little more on the pessimistic side. And we tended to kind of meet in the middle. And so the results were, the re results ended up being good. Um, because yeah, you want to make sure you have complementary skills and a ton of trust in that person. Because if we're both marketing experts and you're looking over my shoulder, Gene, saying, you know, let's change this copy a little bit. I'm not sure that slogan's quite right. I don't think we should be doing Facebook. We should be doing Google. It's like, you're not going to get as much done because you're micromanaging each other. And then there's a trust issue. So yeah, finding that right partner is, is so critical. And I, I, I would tend to believe we probably, I'm just thinking even more recently, 
Um, when I've had bad days, Jessica's lifted me and I think she, I've done the same for her. So I think you feel like because you're co-founders together, like you can't, <laughs> you can't both have a bad day. Otherwise <laughs> like the spiral, the spiral occurs. So I think, I, I think when I look at it, I think we both have risen up, like we'll be on a call and it'll be clear that I'm having a bad day and she's going to, you know, no, remember this, Tim, remember that. I, th I think we do a good job of boosting each other. The, the, the proof is on the paper at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Tim, final question. Uh, and my favorite, favorite to ask for our younger audience is what advice would you give your younger self now with this wealth of experiences that you've now had? I would start with early in your career, find, find a good mentor. Hmm. I just think when you're young, um, it's so important to find somebody you look up to who's willing to, in effect, share and invest, invest in you because in effect that hyper, you know, that's that hyper, hyper education. Um, what else? I don't know. I think it's really important. My twenties, I felt like I, I had jobs that were all consuming, which ended up being good practice for entrepreneur. I was a consultant. I worked with a business consulting firm and for three years, it was, you know, 70 hour work weeks. And I learned more about business in that, that three years. And so I think oftentimes, and again, this is not a popular stance. I recognize um, that there's this desire we got to have balance. And I think if there's a time to be, you know, unbalanced, I think it's in your early twenties before you have a family, before you have children, before you have, because if you're at the right place in the right situation, that can really hyper, hypercharge your career. Um, what else? I was, a you know, <laughs> from a personal perspective, uh, what I know now, it's that old Mark Twain quote about how, you know, idiotic my parents were when I was 18. And by the time I turned 21, I was amazed at how much they'd grown in wisdom. Um, I was a, I was a rebel. I mean, I was a, I was not nice to my parents as a teenager. Um, so be nice to your, be, be nice to your parents. Cause, uh, as you get older and the perspective you have, you re recognize how special they were. Um, so that's just on a, on a personal note. Well, that could have been the five siblings as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, I guess the other thing, I, as I think about it, times that when I think about turning points in my life and how difficult some of those decisions were, I'll just give you one. Um, so I, I had an older brother who I really looked up to. Uh, he was a athlete. He was a good student. And so he went off and became a chemical engineer. And so he was about six years older than me. So I thought, okay, I'm good in math and science. I'll be an engineer too, a chemical engineer. I didn't really know what they did. Um, went off to, to college and, you know, I always thought of myself as a good student. I always thought of myself as persistent and I was not loving it, you know? So kind of one semester in, I'm really struggling. And we all know challenges of going away for college, what that's like, but struggling like I'd never done before. And I was just struck by this. Oh, I got to stay the path. I got to be persistent. I have this self image. And then there was another side of me, which said, whose dream are you living? Like, is this something you really want to do? <laughs> like why? And so I distinctly remember there was like, you think about turning points in your life. I'm standing outside the Dean's office. Cause you have to get the Dean sign off if you want to transfer out of engineering to another program. And I was agonizing over it. You know, no, I got to stick with it. I got best decision I ever made. I went into the Dean's office and said, get me out. And then I chose business and it turned out that was something I really, I really loved. So yeah, I guess the other thing is just make sure you're choosing your own path because it's very easy to follow somebody else's dream. But if it's not yours, life's a lot more play. And, and it was, that was a tough semester when I'm out of, so now I'm out of engineering. I don't know what I'm going to do, but just have faith, have confidence that you're going to find it. And so don't necessarily take that prescribed path that somebody else has laid before you be willing to take the risk. Um, it's, you'll discover who you really are. Tim, that's a message. A lot of 
high school and college students need to hear. I see so much pressure on the shoulders of students to give off the impression they, they know what comes next. Yeah, that's, I guess, yeah, that's a great point. So this is my eighth job. You know, my dad spent 43 years with the same company, a bank. Um, he had different jobs in there, but I guess that's the other thing. Yes, this feeling, that's a great point. You don't have to know the answer. It's a, it's an evolving process. You're going to evolve as an individual. Just take some, take one thing. I can take, I can go back and look at my seven jobs before this and recognize how each one prepared me for this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's powerful. Tim, I am, um, I'm proud to know you and I'm proud to be a voice for the great work that you and that the next gen are doing. Uh, keep it up and uh, I hope I can be a small part in helping you. Oh, you're a big part, Gene. Come on now. <laughs> I love, uh, the tools. I love the tools you're building over at uh, Troutwood. Thank you. Uh, Tim, thank you sincerely. And to everyone uh, tuning in, thank you uh, for watching. Thanks, Gene. You've been listening to Watching Trees Grow, presented by Troutwood. Don't forget to subscribe both to our podcast and our YouTube channel so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in learning more about Troutwood, please visit us at troutwood.com or follow us on social media. A special thank you to our guests today and our host, Jean Natale. Our producers are Jeff Davidek, Maggie Mayer, and me, Kristen Malone. This podcast is not intended to provide legal, investment, or tax advice on any of the topics we've covered. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on another great episode of Watching Trees Grow.